All right, you have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. The message is entitled, The Armor of God, and this is part 2. Paul is now dealing with um, the, the particular parts of the divine armor provided for the believer to fight and to be victorious in the spiritual warfare from verse um, um, 14 to 18. He gives these pieces. Uh, there are seven pieces uh, to the armor listed. Uh, the first five are defensive, as we've seen. The uh, sixth and the seventh, the sword of the spirit, and the prayer in the spirit are offensive, yet they can also be used in a defensive way, but they're more offensive. Uh, the seventh um, is the only one not identified by the metaphor um, stand. By, it stands all by itself. So it's not associated with the metaphor of, um, of, um, of some military thing, but it just stands by itself as an offensive weapon, and we'll get that next time in verse 18. It has been proposed that the order of um, that Paul presents this um, piece of the armor is the same order in which the soldier would put his armor on. Remember, Paul is in jail. He has these um, Roman um, soldiers um, guarding him, and he's um, taking the opportunity to minister and to teach the uh, Christian about the um, uh, invisible warfare that we are involved in uh, from the time that we are born again to the day that we give our last breath. It will never, ever stop. We are born into warfare. So Paul has exhorted the believer to put on the whole armor of God for the simple reason that he is born again into warfare and uh, is constantly living in a war zone. Though he may not always be in a battle, you are always in a war zone. The enemy is ever plotting, looking for the most suitable time and the most vulnerable opportunity to strike. Remember that he, we, we read there uh, in the, the day of, uh, in, of wickedness, that very day that he looks for, that sometimes we go through difficult things and... and uh, other times, not so much, but there are those periods of time, um, seasons that perhaps we go through testings, uh, things that we have to um, go through by our own doing, by other people's doing, by God's allowance, whatever it may be. And, uh, and, and those are the times when uh, some of the fiercest fighting takes place. So last time, we looked at the first three pieces of the armor consisting of the girdle of truth in verse 14. The breastplate of righteousness, also in 14, and the shoes of the gospel of peace in verse 15. Now the believer is to stand, having girded his waist with the truth of God's revelation, producing genuineness of character. The believer is to stand, having put on the breastplate of righteousness for daily living and sanctification imparted by God. And the believers to stand, having shot his feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, resulting in firm footing, giving stability and mobility to proclaim the gospel. Now, we see that Paul wants 
the believer to take the next three pieces of armor. And we find them here um, in verse 16 and 17. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so these last three pieces consist of the shield of faith in verse 16, the helmet of salvation, the first part of 17, and the word of the Spirit, the remainder of 17. First comes the shield of faith in 16. Notice the Apostle Paul is uh, still acting as the commanding general of the Christian soldier here. Uh, Paul pronounced the second part of the armor, these three pieces. Above all, he says, the phrase above all is an expression giving added focus on the next piece of armor here, the shield. The focus is not of greater importance over the other pieces of the armor, for they are all necessary but simply that it is a very important and a vital part of the armor that provides great protection to the Christian soldier in spiritual warfare, keeping the shield between him and the enemy, as we will see. So even though there's not a comparison of greater or lesser, yet it is very evident and very clear that one part has place a greater part or more protective part and depending on the course of the battle. Now, the posture of the believer, notice, is still one of going to battle. The whole armor of God must be appropriated in order to be effective in the spiritual warfare. We can't choose and, and one thing and leave another one off. It's got to be the whole thing. It's like a catcher that's there playing behind the plate He's got to put the shin guards, the breastplate. He's got to put that mask on. And he's got to get that big glove, okay? And he wears uh, some covering over the toes of his shoes too because the ball may hit him there. So he's fully equipped. Now the posture of the believer, again, is still one of battle. And the, this being the only way to withstand the wiles or the stratagems of the devil mentioned in verse 11. There is no other way that you and I can overcome, resist, withstand, or be victorious apart from the full armor of God. It won't work. The reason being is that the enemy is not flesh and blood. He told us that in chapter, uh, this verse 12 of the chapter. It's spiritual hosts of wickedness, fallen angels and demons... In heavenly places, the lower atmosphere. As I told you often in this room, there's good angels and bad angels right now. There's warfare going on. We can't see it, but if God would open our eyes like he did to the servant of Elijah, remember? And he saw it. And he wasn't fearful anymore because there were more with us than with them, the Assyrians. The benefit of the armor is that we are able to withstand, listen, in the evil day and having done all to end up standing, verse 14. The evil day, 
that particular time when you are challenged at work maybe going through some difficult things maybe even because you are a Christian the time when maybe your son or daughter are just rebelling in a very weird way causing a lot of problems the time when you and your wife are not having the best times in marriage You've got to straighten some things out. And then it seems like it's never going to end, like it's going to be forever. But testings and trials are not forever. They're only for a season, Peter tells us. It's important. Paul pronounced the, sound, the second part here of the armor slightly different from the first three pieces, notice. The first three pieces were preceded by the word having. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These three pieces of armor often remained attached in the body of the soldier while he was in camp that I just read. Being ready for battle. I mean, they're on. He's not in a battle, but he's in a war zone. He's in camp right now, but often he had them on. These next three pieces that we're looking at tonight are preceded by the different words. Taking the shield of faith, verse 16. Take the helmet of salvation, 17. Take the sword of the spirit, 17. These three pieces of armor, unlike the first three, did not remain on their person in camp, but were picked up ready to go out to the battle and warfare. They were the first to be put down when you came in. The shield, the helmet, the sword, and you remain with the others because anything can ignite in a second. Notice the Apostle Paul depicted the practice commitment of the Christian soldier, listen to the words, taking the shield of faith. Paul stated the practice of the soldier to take hold of the fourth piece of armor, his shield here. The emphasis is on taking, not standing. Now it's taking. It means to receive, to raise up, or rise up in order to use. This is he. As he is standing ready to go to battle. And gripping hold of his shield. In his one hand. If he's right handed. Then he picks up his shield with his left. If he's left handed. He picks up the shield with his right. Everything else is on. Now he's got one thing in one hand or the other. He's only one, have one free hand. The word here is use of Christ when he was received up to heaven in Mark 16, 19 and Acts 1, 2. The word used for shield here, the real, formerly meant a stone for closing the entrance of a cave. It would just roll a stone over it. Then 
it came to be used for the word shield. It comes from the word dura, thura, a door. Um, the shield mentioned is the longer of the two that were used here. The one in our text is about four feet high, about two and a half feet wide, and um, oblong shape, sometimes square, sometimes maybe round the end, but, but long. So it covered a lot of the body. The other one was a smaller shield, about two feet in oval or circular shape for the archers. This is the long one. This shield was made of two sections of wood and they were glued together uh, or, 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 or wick, wicks work or something like that. And something that had some metal on the outside, but not real heavy. And um, they were covered with leather at times. The shield covered the soldier's entire body for the heavy arm infantry. You've seen some of those movies where... Their shields that big and you have a whole line. Uh, the shields then would be joined together in the first line of defense and almost a wall was made. Because the first thing that they would shoot would be arrows from the long distance to kill as many as they could. And so putting the shields together would create a buffer zone completely. They would hide underneath them. They were soaked with water to extinguish the arrows of the enemy that were pitched in tar and set on fire. Now, Paul stated the particular application of the Christian soldier, the shield of faith. Though he's looking at a literal shield of the soldier, he qualifies it, the shield of faith. This is not referring to saving faith. The Ephesians are saved already. The Ephesians are being instructed on the divine armor provided for the spiritual warfare that they are born into. This refers to the protective shield of faith regarding their Christianity, who they are. There is saving faith that we see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There is general faith, Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, as you grow, develop, and mature. And there is the gift of faith that God gives by one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. The article is present here, the shield of the faith. It's not in our English, but it is in the Greek text indicating their complete trust and reliance in full confidence in the objective truths about the person of Jesus and what he accomplished through the atonement at the cross and the resurrection. This is my protection against the enemy, Satan, his spiritual host of wickedness. What Jesus did for me what he accomplished. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the purpose of the Christian soldiers to take his shield of faith 
is to be victorious. Paul declared the shield will equip them to not be vulnerable, but resilient. Listen to the words, with which you will be able. The phrase you will be able means to have power to overcome and be victorious in the battle. Remember a simple principle. God never commands you to do something that he doesn't first enable and equip you to fulfill. If God offers you salvation, that means he will give you the ability to choose. He won't choose for you, but he'll enable you to choose. If he calls you to stand, then he enables you to stand, but then you must obey and be the participant of that. And we'll see this through some of these phrases. It doesn't happen automatically. I wish it would. The provision is divine. The power is divine. There's the enabling. The tense is the indicative future middle voice for any and all assaults of Satan on the life of the Christian soldier in the future. From the present your future. The very next second. God will give me the ability. The middle voice, as you know, we've touched on it many times, indicates the personal participation of the believer to hold up the shield of faith in the warfare. He can have it, but if he's just dragging it, it's not going to help him. You got to hold it up. You got to get behind it. The purpose is to enable them to fight and be victorious in the warfare. Notice Paul declared the shield will be strong enough to withstand the attacks of the enemy. To quench all the fiery darts. The efficiency is marked by the phrase to quench the fiery darts. The word quench means to extinguish, to suppress the tense is the indicative eras active ongoing the shield will do what it was designed to do the failure is not in the shield the failure is not in God the failure is in the soldier that doesn't use the equipment properly Notice these are severe attacks. The word for fiery darts in the Greek, two of them, they're in the perfect tense, meaning having been set on fire with the press and implication of burning missiles shot at the Christian soldier. Fiery, severe, where does that point back to? The evil day. The evil day. To bring everything to ashes and ruin, but have, having done all, you end up standing. Verse 13 again. Severe and tense. 
Think of some of the things that, and occasions that you read with some of these men and women that lived in, in the church history. Uh, many of them who went against the Catholic Church and they were persecuted severely. Those of the first century against Nero. Christians uh, that um, stood for their faith during the Soviet Union. Those Christians who stood for their faith during Charles' uh, 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 revolution, uh, cultural revolution. Amazing. Those who stand today in Cuba who go to jail, Iran. Remember, they would dip their arrows in pitch set them on fire, then they would shoot them in hope of causing fear, striking fear. Knowing that they're going to shoot at you is one, but then being out there and having that projectile strike your shield, that's another And their hope was that as that missile hit and it was burning, that fear would strike the soldier, you would drop his shield and run. Now his back is exposed. There's no armor there. Hmm. Their confidence in their shield was vital as the arrows would penetrate the first layer of wood, but knowing the leather would help extinguish the flame and then the added safety of being soaked with water. Then the soldier stood courageous, fierce, unmovable, having confidence in that shield and the way it's put together, that if I use it the way it's meant to be used, it will work. Hmm. Notice Paul declared the enemy commander of these fiery darts, Satan, of the wicked one. The wicked one, Poneros, we've seen it before. It describes the very evil nature of Satan. He is evil himself. He delights in doing evil things. He delights in making others evil. The wicked one, Ponros, is a title indicating evil character, influence, and effect upon others. Cain is called the Ponros, one who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were Ponros, evil, and his brother's righteous, 1 John 3.12. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, as a practice, no longer. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the Poneros does not touch him, 1 John 5, 18. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the Poneros, the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19. You and I used to be under the sway of the wicked one, 
Poneros, before we were Christian, before we repented of our sins. You know, it's much like the Shields policemen stand confidently behind to protect them from the riotous mob that are throwing rocks and bottles at them. So the Christian soldier stands behind using that shield of faith to stop the fiery darts of the enemy. Confident. The believer must um, take the shield of faith, his trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Stand and fight. I mean, stop and think about the stupid things we used to fight over or fight for in the world. And then sometimes we won't fight for the most valuable things that God has given to us. We fight for the dumbest things in the world. After the battle of Cadalamer, remember in Genesis 15, Abraham was after in verse chapter 14 where Melchizedek came and met him. Um, Abraham became afraid. Um, he was started thinking, what did these kings all confederate together and not come against me? And it was at that time that God said, um, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward, Genesis 15.1. I'm your protection. I'm in control. And God is, is our shield of encouragement, Psalm 3.3 tells us. God is our shield of protection, Psalm 5.12 tells us. God is our shield of strength and promotion in Psalm 18.35. God is our shield of grace, glory, and goodness in Psalm 84.11. God is our shield of hope in Psalm 119.114. So the believer must take the shield of faith to be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. To extinguish our depraved nature. The works of the flesh empowering us to not allow them to rear their ugly head and be manifested. Galatians five nineteen through 21. My sin nature is ever present, but I have a new divine nature. To extinguish the fiery temptations and weaknesses of our fallen state. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life in 1 John 2, 16 and 17. It's all around us. It's when you turn the TV on. It's in magazines. It don't have to be dirty cochino magazines, just regular magazines. Billboards. Just stepping on, seeing the way women dress. It's all around us. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. So you have to have the armor on. To extinguish every attack and be victorious. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. 1 John 5, 4. So the believer is to take the shield of faith. Secondly, the helmet of salvation, 17. The Apostle Paul continued acting as the commanding general here to the Christian soldier. 
Paul pronounced a quote from Isaiah for the next piece of armor, the helmet. The context of the quote is the salvation of Israel in Isaiah 59, verse 15 down to 21 in that section. God sovereignly interceded for man in that text. God was displeased by the conditions of the nation. He saw no one to intercede for man. So, God chose to intervene to bring about salvation by his provision of the suffering servant, the righteousness sufficient to sustain him for the battle of salvation. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which none of us can do, is directed by God's sovereignty to this provision for the salvation of Israel as the undisputed victorious warrior, and he quotes it for the Christian soldier now. So these men spoke under the inspiration, and the Holy Spirit directed them to connect the two together, which you and I cannot do. You stop and think about the one that Jesus told Nicodemus as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes it should not perish everlasting life. I mean, how would you ever figure out when you saw the brass serpent in the wilderness there with Moses and the fiery serpents in the camp? How would you ever figure out that that was a type of Jesus Christ? Prophetically. But God through His Spirit did that as... Jesus pointed that out as the men that were speaking on their inspiration. He puts them together. The quote there in Isaiah 59, 17, the first two lines is, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God put on righteousness in, um, as his breastplate, which he quoted already for the Christian soldier's breastplate of righteousness. And now, God put on the helmet of salvation on his head, which he now calls for the Christian soldier for his helmet of salvation. God is called throughout the book of Isaiah, as you know, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. God is declared to be the Lord, a man, a war in Exodus 15.3. And he's never, ever lost a battle or a war. God is King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen, as he returns to set up the kingdom after he destroys the armies of the world at the battle of Armageddon. Notice Paul still continues the posture of the believer of ongoing battle. The whole armor of God must be appropriated again in order to be effective in spiritual warfare. And this is where we miss out. This is where we lose it. We study, we listen, we read, and this, and we have it up here. But then we're thrust in the warfare, in the battle, and we just go blank. All the training goes out the door. <laughs> That's one thing about soldiers. You can send them to boot camp and train them all you want, but you don't know how they're going to respond in actual warfare until they get there. You're hoping they're going to respond the same way, but you've got a, uh, an artificial 
environment as your training compared to the genuine reality, which is far different. This being the only way to withstand the wealth and stratagems of the devil. The reason is that the enemy is not flesh and blood again, but spiritual hosts of wickedness, fallen angels and demons in heavenly places. I can't see them. But I can know who it is that's messing with me. Good angels don't mess with me like that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't try to provoke me. Or make me mad or tempt me. The benefit of the armor. As we are able to withstand the evil day. There's the key. Again, and having done all, you end up standing. Notice the Apostle Paul once again depicted the practice commitment of the Christian soldier and to take the helmet of salvation. The word helmet is um, made up of two words. The first one means about, around, or near. The second one means head. So a helmet is something that goes around near to the head. Simple. The helmets were made of certain material. Iron or brass. You have some of those mentioned in 1 Samuel 17.5 and also verse 38. 2 Chronicles 26.14. Now helmets had leather attachments to secure them around the chin. And sometimes leather would be attached to the metal to secure them and make them a little stronger also. Helmets were not designed for fashion or for looks. But rather for strength and effective protection. Paul knew the helmet was uh, crucial to the Roman soldier. The, um, the soldier with a helmet would be able to withstand and sustain uh, blows to the head that would otherwise impair him from the battle. Um, he would suffer many different things. A soldier without a helmet was very vulnerable um, by being struck on the head, becoming perhaps confused, disoriented, dizzy, or impaired in his vision. And uh, it would make the difference between life and death. Just 1,000 a second distraction, you're dead. 1,000 a second of disorientation, and you're not alert. A soldier without the helmet certainly would be a target for the struck with a fatal wound, be it with a sword, a lance, an arrow, or a heavy club. The soldier with a helmet would have great confidence in battle, minimizing the potential injuries and maximizing fatal protection. That would allow you to be 100% yourself more. The more confidence you have in this armor, the more you can be the fierce warrior you're supposed to be. The soldier would be less distracted and anxious, more focused, courageous in the battle. You see, simple principle. Whatever happens to the head affects the body. 
It's real simple. This runs it all. <laughs> it's real simple. Notice Paul knew the helmet of salvation is in preparation for spiritual warfare, the fifth piece of the armor here. The Greek grammar is different from our English translation. Scholars point out that the object, helmet, is placed before the verb take in the Greek text. This makes the word helmet emphatic. Like if you said to your son, shirt, pick it up. The emphasis is on the shirt. You put that first. Okay? You can say, pick up the shirt. But you say, the shirt, pick it up. You make it emphatic. The English places the verb before the object, which does not give us the right understanding. The metaphor has not changed. All that is addressed is addressed to the Christian soldier. It's the same old audience. The declaration is not a suggestion but an order. This is the imperative command. The word take means to accept or receive. The same word, again, that Jesus was received up. The shield being in his one hand, whether he was left hand or right hand, the other being free, he is now to reach down. The heiress indicates the action as occurring. The middle voice again indicates the individual as the one doing it or participating in obedience. The particular helmet of salvation cannot refer to initial salvation. But here he stands. He's got both hands occupied now. He's got the helmet on. Or he still has the one hand free. But he's almost ready to go to battle. And here he is. And it's referred to the helmet of salvation. But these guys are saved. So it cannot refer to initial salvation. He's instructing them on spiritual warfare. They're born again, as we said. The helmet of salvation refers to the quality and protective mind of Christ, knowing the word of God. To not be defeated, deceived, distracted by the enemy. Salvation is described in three ways in the scriptures. We are saved or have been saved. Past tense, Ephesians 2.8. We are being saved, present tense, 2 Corinthians 1.10. And we shall be saved, future tense, Romans 5.10. You know, even as a soldier, must have a military mind, resilient, in order that the obstacles and fear that will strike him at the time will not 
break him or defeat him in warfare. It's the same thing with you and I. And sometimes it is scary to be a Christian. And the things... Because Satan always magnifies the benefit of sin and disobedience and the flesh. And he minimizes the consequences of it. When Satan comes about to tempt you and try to draw you out, puts a magnifying glass to the goodies. Whoa, they look so big and inviting and delicious. And you say, yeah, but... And, and, and then he, he reverses the magnifying glass and you look at it and the consequence seems so small that you start saying, maybe it's not that bad. That's what happened to Eve. Has God said... He just knows the day you eat, you'll be just like him. You're not going to die. Hmm. I wonder what went through Eve's mind. Both of them being in a state of absolute innocence. And we'll just use that word because there's no other way we can describe what they were. But they had not known sin. They, they, had, they, they were just totally untouched. And the minute she ate, she understood the horror of what she had done against God. And now affecting her. And my mind is... How in the world did she go and give to her husband knowing how horrible of experience it was for her? Amazing. The believer must take the helmet of salvation and extinguish distractions and disappointments resulting in anger, resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness. You got to put on that helmet. Listen to Philippians 3, 13 through 15. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and, and, and reaching forward to the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize for the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. One thing necessary, forgetting those things. One thing, forgetting those things that are behind. Jesus said, a man who puts his hand to the plow does not look back. If he does, he's not worthy of the kingdom. Finally, my brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, listen carefully, and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. What an amazing, amazing declaration. I have to force, fight in the battle. The believer must take the helmet of salvation and extinguish discouragement. 
We who are of the day are to be sober, sound-minded, and put on the as the helmet of hope of salvation, First Thessalonians 5.8 says. The psalmist says, Why are you disquieted within me, O my soul? Hope thou in God. Sometimes you're the only one that's going to be around to encourage yourself. And you've got to talk to yourself the right way. What's wrong with you? Why are you bummed out? Hope in God. Fool. We have the mind of Christ as believers. 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us. We're to put it on. Remembering we're servants of Christ unto death. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. Didn't take it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself of his glory, not his deity. And he took on the form of a servant and was obedient to the death of the cross. Wow. The believer must take the helmet of salvation to extinguish doubt, which will result in unbelief. First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen, as you know, the Thessalonians were confused about their dead loved ones, and Paul reminded them that they would be returning with Jesus in the clouds when He would rapture us and would be with them. The Hebrews began to doubt the sufficiency of Christ, and they were in a state of unbelief. Hebrews two one says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift. Away. You know how easy it is to drift. You ever gone out to the beach and gone out there and try to, you know, body surf some waves and you're out there for an hour. You start on lifeguard station one and an hour later you're down at 15. You didn't even know it. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. With the warfare. You see, the believer must take the helmet of salvation to walk by faith, not by sight or feelings. And no one can escape this. Feelings and emotions are strong an anxious moment Philippians 4, 6 and 7 be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request known unto God and the peace of God surpass all understanding will guard your hearts and mind perfect peace in sufferings 1 Peter four nineteen, we have to commit ourselves to his will in our sufferings as a faithful creator in the midst of the perils of death, Paul the Apostle speaks in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. As he nearly was, was, he just gave up hope. He was about to die, but God delivered him. In the midst of the perils of death, not only then, but also in the moment when everybody abandoned him in 1 Timothy four sixteen and 18. But God stood by his side. When everybody leaves you, you stand alone. No one else, your wife, your husband, your children. Hmm. We need to understand this, lest Satan take advantage of us 
but we're not ignorant to his devices, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We cannot live our life by our feelings and emotions, especially you ladies. You'll be tossed to and fro. You'll destroy yourself. To the believer is to take the helmet of salvation. Notice thirdly, the believer is to take the sword of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul here uh, continues acting as commander, the general here for the Christian soldier. And uh, Paul pronounced no quote for the sixth piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit. But the understanding is clear. The perspective is war. He, um, to defend oneself, first of all, and to defeat the enemy. God often in Scripture is described in His victorious power of His words as a sword from His mouth. Prophetic of Christ in Isaiah 59.2 and at the second coming in Revelation 19.15 as it goes out of His mouth, double-edged sword. Now Paul again is indicating the posture, notice, of the Christian soldier, that of commitment to fight. Very consistent. This is the sixth piece of armor. And the only offensive one, physically, we're going to get one more prayer, which is maybe more powerful than the physical one, the illustration. At this point, he's standing fully equipped. Every part of his body is protected to engage the enemy victoriously. He has gripped girded his waist with truth. He has put on the breastplates of righteousness. He has shod his feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He has taken the helmet of salvation. He now takes the sword of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul again depicted the practice commitment of the Christian soldier. The sword of the Spirit. Paul knew the importance of a good sword. The five preceding pieces of the armor have been offensive. The sixth is defensive in nature. The command word take to receive and accept as before equally applies here to the sword. Paul was speaking about a particular kind of sword. The word for sword here is Markyra. is a short sword, a dagger on his belt of the Roman hoplite. The whole armor. This was the last <clears throat> restored hand-to-hand combat. This was your last line of defense. The most frightful experience Shooting at somebody from long ways, casting a spear, is one thing. But being hand-to-hand, that's a whole different matter. Sometimes it's hand-to-hand with the spiritual forces of wickedness. It's intense. There's pressure. Anxiety. Almost hopeless in some time because we get our eyes off the Lord and 
are trying to fight in the flesh, not the armor. If Satan can bring me out into the arena of the flesh, I am dead. If you're going to step out in the arena, you must have your full armor on. There was a larger sword, a thrashian weapon to depict judgment of, as in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that whether he should strike the nations and himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, the fierceness, the wrath of God Almighty. There's the thrashing sword, the bigger one out of his mouth. Also in Revelation 19.21, And the rest were killed with the sword, thrashing sword, judgment sword, which proceed from his mouth of him who sat on the, on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Notice Paul indicated a particular sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. The reference is to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The sword is the instrument of the Holy Spirit, not our own. The Christian soldier is to be filled with the Spirit continually, we are told in Ephesians 5.18. Keep on keeping on. By the way, that command is given right before he tells us our role as husbands and wives and parents. In other words, you cannot be a proper husband and wife or parent without being filled with the Spirit of God. You're unable to do it. The opening proclamation to the Christian soldier in verse 10 was, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Holy Spirit is a comforter sent by the Father and Jesus, John 14, 15, and 16, to guide us, to teach us, to bring to our remembrance all things, to illuminate, uh, instruct us the things that we need. He never adds or takes away from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit only speaks what Jesus says. Notice Paul identified what the sword of the Spirit is which is the word of God. The word uses rima, that denotes that which is spoken or uttered by the mouth. A lot of the positive confession teachers make a big deal. The rhema, compared to logos, we'll look at that. The spoken word versus the, uh, the other words. The word appears 70 times in the New Testament, rima, spoken word. The spoken word is the way God has chosen to defeat the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Verse 12. The power of God unto salvation is manifested through the proclamation of the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Now the other word uses logos or logos, whichever you want to pronounce it. That's different. That denotes the expression of thought of direct revelation given by God. This is used also for the very title of the Son of God, the Word of God, the Logos. You see, the Scriptures are God's Word revealed to man. The Scriptures are God-breathed, expired from the mouth of God, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scriptures given by inspiration of God. 
The Word of God reveals the absolute truth about God, creation, and the world, and man. The Word of God reveals the fall of Adam, the entrance of sin and death, and the plan of redemption. Scriptures are recorded, inerrant, infallible, not being sourced or having their origin with human beings, but holy men as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. These men were not robots in their writings. These men were not infallible or inerrant. When they were not inspired, they were normal people like you and I. It's only when the Holy Spirit came upon them to write the epistles. You know, it's even as a man who would take a power saw to build whatever he wanted to do, yet he had nothing to do with the power. He couldn't boast of the power. Only that he used that instrument, but he couldn't claim any of the power. You see, the believer must take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in order to defeat Satan and his host of wickedness. Our Lord clearly showed this as he was in his temptation of the wilderness, as he repeated three times to Satan, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quoted the Word of God. He spoke it. Satan is a liar. He quotes words the word of God out of context all the time. The Holy Spirit never adds or takes away, as I said, from the word of God. He only speaks the very words of Jesus. He's a silent witness of Jesus. First John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the other pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. That's what we're up against. You see, the believer must take up the sword of the Spirit to defeat our sinful flesh. To reckon the old man dead daily, Romans 6, 11. To walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh because they are contrary one to the other and you cannot do that which you wish. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. That that I want to do, I don't because I'm yielding to the new nature by the spirit of God. To cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. To bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. The Word of God. You see, the believer must take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to resist the world. Listen to the Word. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Philippians 4.12. Wow. Jesus says, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Peter says, but the word of God of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Proclaim 1 Peter 1, 25. The word of God. The sword of the spirit. So the believer is to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are the next three. Pieces of the armor for the Christian soldier to be taken on himself for spiritual warfare. Take the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. Well, we uh, lift our lives to you. We 
We cry out to you, Lord. We, we know what it is to fight in the flesh. We've lost every time. We also know what it is to fight in the spirit, Lord. Because we've never lost when we fought in the spirit. And so, Father, teach us to be obedient to you. And to not trust our flesh. But only you, Lord. Teach us to do good warfare. Help us to trust you and not ourselves, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He, he was born for you to come flesh. He went to the cross for you. He died for you. And he said at the cross, it is finished. He made the ultimate payment that you might call on his name and be forgiven and be made a new creation. This is the gospel. So if this is your decision, if you see yourself as a sinner before God in need of salvation, then this is your prayer of repentance. And he will save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.